Section 14 of Redburn, His First Voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Redburn, His First Voyage by Herman Melville. Chapters 60 through 62. Chapter 60 home at last next day was sunday and the midday sun shone upon a glassy sea after the uproar of the breeze and the gale this profound pervading calm seemed suited to the tranquil spirit of a day which in godly towns makes quiet vistas of the most tumultuous thoroughfares the ship lay gently rolling in the soft subdued ocean swell while all around were faint white spots, and nearer to, broad milky patches, betokening the vicinity of scores of ships, all bound to one common port, and tranced in one common calm. Here, the long, devious wakes from Europe, Africa, India, and Peru, converged to a line which braided them all in one. Full before us, quivered and danced, in the noonday heat and mid-air, the green heights of New Jersey, and by an optical delusion the blue sea seemed to flow under them. The sailors whistled and whistled for a wind, the impatient cabin passengers were arrayed in their best, and the immigrants clustered around the bows with eyes intent upon the long-sought land. But leaning over in a reverie against the side, my Carlo gazed down into the calm violet sea as if it were an eye that answered his own. And turning to Harry, said, This America's skies must be down in the sea, for looking down in this water, I behold what, in Italy, we also behold overhead. Ah, after all, I find my Italy somewhere, wherever I go. I even found it in rainy Liverpool. Presently up came a dainty breeze, wafting to us a white wing from the shore, the pilot-boat. Soon a monkey-jacket mounted the side, and was beset by the captain and cabin-people for news, and out of bottomless pockets came bundles of newspapers, which were eagerly caught by the throng. The captain now abdicated in the pilot's favor, who proved to be a tiger of a fellow, keeping us hard at work, pulling and hauling the braces, and trimming the ship to catch the least cat's-paw of wind when, among sea-worn people, a strange man from shore suddenly stands among them, with the smell of the land in his beard, it conveys a realization of the vicinity of the green grass, that not even the distant sight of the shore itself can transcend. The steerage was now as a bedlam, trunks and chests were locked and tied round with ropes, and a general washing and rinsing of faces and hands was beheld. While this was going on, Forth came an order from the quarter-deck for every bed, blanket, bolster, and bundle of straw in the steerage to be committed to the deep, a command that was received by the immigrants with dismay, and then with wrath. But they were assured that this was indispensable to the getting rid of an otherwise long detention of some weeks at the quarantine. They therefore reluctantly complied, and overboard went pallet and pillow, Following them went old pots and pans, bottles and baskets. So, all around, 
the sea was strewn with stuffed bed-ticks that limberly floated on the waves, couches for all mermaids who were not fastidious. Numberless things of this sort, tossed overboard from emigrant ships nearing the harbor of New York, drift in through the narrows, and are deposited on the shores of Staten Island, along whose eastern beach I have often walked, and speculated upon the broken jugs, torn pillows, and dilapidated baskets at my feet. A second order was now passed for the immigrants to muster their forces, and give the steerage a final, thorough cleaning with sand and water. And to this they were incited by the same warning which had induced them to make an offering to Neptune of their bedding. The place was then fumigated and dried with pans of coals from the galley, so that by evening no stranger would have imagined from her appearance that the Highlander had made otherwise than a tidy and prosperous voyage. Thus some sea captains take good heed that benevolent citizens shall not get a glimpse of the true condition of the steerage while at sea. That night it again fell calm, but next morning, though the wind was somewhat against us, we set sail for the narrows, and, making short tacks, at last ran through, almost bringing our jib-boom over one of the forts. An earlier shower had refreshed the woods and fields that glowed with a glorious green, and to our salted lungs the land breeze was spiced with aromas. The steerage passengers almost neighed with delight, like horses brought back to spring pastures, and every eye and ear in the Highlander was full of the glad sights and sounds of the shore. No more did we think of the gale and the plague, nor turn our eyes upward to the stains of blood still visible on the topsail whence Jackson had fallen. But we fixed our gaze on the orchards and meads, and like thirsty men drank in all their dew. On the Staten Island side, a white staff displayed a pale yellow flag denoting the habitation of the quarantine officer for as if to symbolize the yellow fever itself and strike a panic and premonition of the black vomit into every beholder all quarantines all over the world taint the air with the streamings of their fever flag but though the long rows of whitewashed hospitals on the hillside were now in plain sight and though scores of ships were here lying at anchor yet no boat came off to us and to our surprise and delight on we sailed past a spot which every one had dreaded how it was that they thus let us pass without boarding us we never could learn now rose the city from out the bay and one by one her spires pierced the blue while thick and more thick ships brigs schooners and sailboats thronged around we saw the heart's forest of masts and black rigging stretching along the east river and northward up the stately old hudson covered with white sloop sails like fleets of swans we caught a far glimpse of the purple palisades oh he who has never been afar let him once go from home to know what home is for as you draw nigh again to your old native river he seems to pour through you with all his tides and in your enthusiasm you swear to build altars like milestones along both his sacred banks. Like the Tsar of all the Russias, and Siberia to boot, Captain Riga, telescope in hand, stood on the poop, pointing out to the passengers Governor's Island, Castle Garden, and the Battery. And that, said he,
pointing out a vast black hull, which, like a shark, showed tiers of teeth. That, ladies, is a line of battleship, the North Carolina. Oh, dear, and oh, my, ejaculated the ladies, and Lord save us, responded an old gentleman who was a member of the Peace Society. Hurrah, hurrah, and ten thousand times hurrah. Down goes our old anchor, fathoms down into the free and independent Yankee mud, one handful of which was now worth a broad manor in England. The Whitehall boats were around us, and soon our cabin passengers were all off, gay as crickets, and bound for a late dinner at the Astor House, where no doubt they fired off a salute of champagne corks in honor of their own arrival. Only a very few of the steerage passengers, however, could afford to pay the high price the watermen demanded for carrying them ashore, so most of them remained with us till morning. But nothing could restrain our Italian boy Carlo, who, promising the watermen to pay them with his music, was triumphantly rowed ashore, seated in the stern of the boat, his organ before him, and something like Hail Columbia his tune. We gave him three rapturous cheers, and we never saw Carlo again. Harry and I passed the greater part of the night, walking the deck and gazing at the thousand lights of the city. At sunrise, we warped into a berth at the foot of Wall Street, and nodded our old ship, stem and stern, to the pier. But that nodding of her was the unknotting of the bonds of the sailors, among whom it is a maxim that the ship once fast to the wharf, they are free. So, with a rush and a shout, they bounded ashore, followed by the tumultuous crowd of immigrants, whose friends, day-laborers, and housemaids stood ready to embrace them. But in silent gratitude at the end of a voyage, almost equally uncongenial to both of us, and so bitter to one, Harry and I sat on a chest in the forecastle. And now the ship that we had loathed grew lovely in our eyes, which lingered over every familiar old timber for the scene of suffering is a scene of joy when the suffering is past, and the silent reminiscence of hardships departed is sweeter than the presence of delight. Chapter 61 Redburn and Harry, Arm in Arm in Harbor There we sat in that tarry old den, the only inhabitants of the deserted old ship but the mate and the rats. At last Harry went to his chest, and drawing out a few shillings, proposed that we should go ashore and return with a supper to eat in the forecastle. Little else that was eatable being for sale in the paltry shops along the wharves, we bought several pies, some doughnuts, and a bottle of ginger pop, and thus supplied we made merry. For to us, whose very mouths were become pickled and puckered with the continual flavor of briny beef, those pies and doughnuts were most delicious. And as for the ginger pop, why, that ginger-pop was divine. I have reverenced ginger-pop ever since. We kept late hours that night, for delightful certainty placed beyond all doubt, like royal landsmen, we were masters of the watches of the night, and no starbolines ahoy would annoy us again. All night in. Think of that, Harry, my friend. Aye, Wellingborough, it's enough to keep me awake forever, to think I may now sleep as long as I please. We turned out bright and early, and then prepared for the shore, first stripping to the waist for a toilet. 
"'I shall never get these confounded tar-stains out of my fingers,' cried Harry, rubbing them hard with a bit of oakum, steeped in strong suds. "'No, they will not come out. And I'm ruined for life. Look at my hand once, Wellingborough.' It was, indeed, a sad sight. Every fingernail, like mine, was dyed of a rich, russet hue, looking something like bits of fine tortoise-shell. "'Never mind, Harry,' said I. "'You know, the ladies of the East steep the tips of their fingers in some golden dye.' "'And by Plutus,' cried Harry, "'I'd steep mine up to the armpits in gold, since you talk about that. "'But never mind. I'll swear I'm just from Persia, my boy.' We now arrayed ourselves in our best, and sallied ashore, and at once I piloted Harry to the sign of a turkey-cock in Fulton Street, kept by one Sweeney, a place famous for cheap souchong and capital buckwheat cakes. "'Well, gentlemen, what will you have?' said a waiter, as we seated ourselves at a table. "'Gentlemen,' whispered Harry to me, "'Gentlemen, hear him.' I say now, Redburn, they didn't talk to us that way on board the old Highlander. By heaven, I begin to feel my straps again. Coffee and hot rolls, he added aloud, crossing his legs like a lord. And fellow, come back. Bring us a venison steak. Haven't got it, gentlemen. Ham and eggs, suggested I, whose mouth was watering at the recollection of that particular dish which I had tasted at the sign of the turkey-cock before. So ham and eggs it was, and royal coffee, and imperial toast. But the butter. Harry, did you ever taste such butter as this before? Don't say a word, said Harry, spreading his tenth slice of toast. I'm going to turn dairyman, and keep within the blessed savor of butter so long as I live. We made a breakfast never to be forgotten, paid our bill with a flourish, and sallied into the street like two goodly galleons of gold bound from Acapulco to old Spain. Now, said Harry, lead on, and let's see something of these United States of yours. I'm ready to pace from Maine to Florida, ford the Great Lakes, and jump the River Ohio, if it comes in the way. Here, take my arm, lead on. Such was the miraculous change that had now come over him. It reminded me of his manner when we had started for London from the sign of the Golden Anchor in Liverpool. He was, indeed, in most wonderful spirits, at which I could not help marvelling, considering the cavity in his pockets, and that he was a stranger in the land. By noon he had selected his boarding-house, a private establishment where they did not charge much for their board, and where the landlady's butcher's bill was not very large. Here, at last, I left him to get his chest from the ship, while I turned up town to see my old friend Mr. Jones, and learn what had happened during my absence. With one hand, Mr. Jones shook mine most cordially, and with the other gave me some letters which I eagerly devoured. Their purport compelled my departure homeward, and I at once sought out Harry to inform him. Strange, but even the few hours' absence which had intervened, during which Harry had been left to himself to stare at strange streets and strange faces, had wrought a marked change in his countenance. He was a creature of the suddenest impulses. Left to himself, 
the strange streets seemed now to have reminded him of his friendless condition, and I found him with a very sad eye, and his right hand groping in his pocket. "'Where am I going to dine this day week?' he slowly said. "'What's to be done, Wellingborough?' And when I told him that the next afternoon I must leave him, he looked downhearted enough. But I cheered him as well as I could, though needing a little cheering myself, even though I had got home again. But no more about that. Now, there was a young man of my acquaintance in the city, much my senior, by the name of Goodwell, and a good-natured fellow he was, who had of late been engaged as a clerk in a large forwarding-house in South Street. And it occurred to me that he was just the man to befriend Harry, and procure him a place. So I mentioned the thing to my comrade, and we called upon Goodwell. I saw that he was impressed by the handsome exterior of my friend, and in private, making known the case, he faithfully promised to do his best for him, though the times, he said, were quite dull. That evening, Goodwell, Harry, and I perambulated the streets three abreast, Goodwill spending his money freely at the oyster saloons, Harry full of allusions to the London clubhouses, and myself contributing a small quota to the general entertainment. Next morning we proceeded to business. Now, I did not expect to draw much of a salary from the ship, so as to retire for life on the profits of my first voyage. But nevertheless, I thought that a dollar or two might be coming, for dollars are valuable things, and should not be overlooked when they are owing. Therefore, as the second morning after our arrival had been set apart for paying off the crew, Harry and I made our appearance on shipboard with the rest. We were told to enter the cabin, and once again I found myself, after an interval of four months and more, surrounded by its mahogany and maple. Seated in a sumptuous armchair behind a lustrous inlaid desk, sat Captain Riga, arrayed in his city hotel suit, looking magisterial as the Lord High Admiral of England. Hat in hand, the sailors stood deferentially in a semicircle before him, while the captain held the ship papers in his hand and one by one called their names. And in mellow banknotes, beautiful sight, paid them their wages. Most of them had less than ten, a few twenty, and two thirty dollars coming to them, while the old cook, whose piety proved profitable in restraining him from the expensive excesses of most seafaring men, and who had taken no pay in advance, had the goodly round sum of seventy dollars as his due. Seven ten-dollar bills, each of which, as I calculated at the time, was worth precisely one hundred dimes, which were equal to one thousand cents which were again subdivisible into fractions. So that he now stepped into a fortune of seventy thousand American mitts. Only seventy dollars after all, but then it has always seemed to me that stating amounts in sounding fractional sums conveys a much fuller notion of their magnitude than by disguising their immensity in such aggregations of value as doubloons, sovereigns, and dollars. Who would not rather be worth... 125,000 francs in Paris than only 5,000 pounds in London, though the intrinsic value of the two sums in round numbers is pretty much the same. With a scrape of the foot and such a bow as only a negro can make, 
the old cook marched off with his fortune, and I have no doubt at once invested it in a grand underground oyster-cellar. The other sailors, after counting their cash very carefully, and seeing all was right, and not a bank-note was dog-eared, in which case they would have demanded another, for they are not to be taken in and cheated, your sailors, and they know their rights, too, at least when they are at liberty after the voyage is concluded. The sailors also salaamed and withdrew, leaving Harry and me face to face with the paymaster-general of the forces. We stood a while, looking as polite as possible, and expecting every moment to hear our names called, but not a word did we hear, while the captain, throwing aside his accounts, lighted a very fragrant cigar, took up the morning paper, I think it was the Herald, threw his leg over one arm of the chair, and plunged into the latest intelligence from all parts of the world. I looked at Harry, and he looked at me, and then we both looked at this incomprehensible captain. At last Harry hemmed, and I scraped my foot to increase the disturbance. The paymaster-general looked up. "'Well, where do you come from? Who are you, pray? And what do you want? Steward, show these young gentlemen out.' "'I want my money,' said Harry. "'My wages are due,' said I. The captain laughed. Oh, he was exceedingly merry, and, taking a long inspiration of smoke, removed his cigar, and sat sideways looking at us, letting the vapour slowly wriggle and spiralize out of his mouth. "'Upon my soul, young gentlemen, you astonish me. Are your names down in the city directory? Have you any letters of introduction, young gentlemen?' "'Captain Riga,' cried Harry, enraged at his impudence. "'I tell you what it is, Captain Riga. This won't do. Where's the rhino?' "'Captain Riga,' added I, "'do you not remember that about four months ago my friend Mr. Jones and myself had an interview with you in this very cabin, when it was agreed that I was to go out in your ship and receive three dollars per month for my services? "'Well, Captain Riga, I have gone out with you, and returned. And now, sir, I'll thank you for my pay.' "'Ah, yes, I remember,' said the captain. Mr. Jones, ha, ha, I remember Mr. Jones, a very gentlemanly gentleman. And stop. You, too, are the son of a wealthy French importer. And let me think, was not your great-uncle a barber? No, I thundered. Well, well, young gentleman, really, I beg your pardon. Steward, chairs for the young gentleman. Be seated, young gentleman. And now let me see turning over his accounts. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. Here it is. Wellingborough Redburn, at three dollars a month. Say, four months, that's twelve dollars. Less three dollars advanced in Liverpool, that makes it nine dollars. Less three hammers and two scrapers lost overboard, that brings it to four dollars and a quarter. I owe you four dollars and a quarter, I believe, young gentleman. "'So it seems, sir,' said I, with staring eyes. "'And now let me see what you owe me, "'and then we'll be able to square the yards, Monsieur Redburn.' "'Oh, him,' thought I. "'What do I owe him but a grudge?' "'But I concealed my resentment, and presently he said, "'By running away from the ship in Liverpool, "'you forfeited your wages, which amount to twelve dollars.' and as there has been advanced to you in money, hammers, and scrapers, 
$7.75, you are therefore indebted to me in precisely that sum. Now, young gentleman, I'll thank you for the money. And he extended his open palm across the desk. Shall I pitch into him? whispered Harry. I was thunderstruck at this most unforeseen announcement of the state of my account with Captain Riga and I began to understand why it was that he had till now ignored my absence from the ship when Harry and I were in London. But a single minute's consideration showed that I could not help myself. So, telling him that he was at liberty to begin his suit, for I was a bankrupt and could not pay him, I turned to go. Now, here was this man, actually turning a poor lad adrift without a copper, after he had been slaving aboard his ship for more than four mortal months. But Captain Riga was a bachelor of expensive habits, and had run up large wine bills at the city hotel. He could not afford to be munificent. Peace to his dinners. Mr. Bolton, I believe, said the captain, now blandly bowing toward Harry. Mr. Bolton, you also shipped for three dollars per month, and you had one month's advance in Liverpool, and from dock to dock we have been about a month and a half. So I owe you just one dollar and a half, Mr. Bolton, and here it is, handing him six two-shilling pieces. And this, said Harry, throwing himself into a tragical attitude, this is the reward of my long and faithful services? Then, disdainfully flinging the silver on the desk, he exclaimed, There, Captain Riga, you may keep your tin. It has been in your purse, and it would give me the itch to retain it. Good morning, sir. Good morning, young gentleman. Pray call again, said the captain, coolly bagging the coins. His politeness while in port was invincible. Quitting the cabin, I remonstrated with Harry upon his recklessness in disdaining his wages, small though they were. I begged to remind him of his situation, and hinted that every penny he could get might prove precious to him. But he only cried, Pshh! and that was the last of it. Going forward, we found the sailors congregated on the forecastle deck, engaged in some earnest discussion, while several carts on the wharf, loaded with their chests, were just in the act of driving off, destined for the boarding-houses uptown. By the looks of our shipmates, I saw very plainly that they must have some mischief under way, and so it turned out. Now, though Captain Riga had not been guilty of any particular outrage against the sailors, yet by a thousand small meannesses, such as indirectly causing their allowance of bread and beef to be diminished, without betraying any appearance of having any inclination that way, and without speaking to the sailors on the subject, by this and kindred actions, I say, he had contracted the cordial dislike of the whole ship's company and long since they had bestowed upon him a name unmentionably expressive of their contempt. The voyage was now concluded, and it appeared that the subject being debated by the assembly on the forecastle was how best they might give a united and valedictory expression of the sentiments they entertained toward their late lord and master. Some emphatic symbol of those sentiments was desired, some unmistakable token which should forcibly impress Captain Riga with the justest possible notion of their feelings. It was like a meeting of the members of some mercantile company, upon the eve of a prosperous dissolution of the concern, 
when the subordinates, actuated by the purest gratitude toward their president or chief, proceed to vote him a silver pitcher in token of their respect. It was something like this, I repeat, but with a material difference as will be seen. At last, the precise manner in which the thing should be done being agreed upon, Blunt, the Irish cockney, was deputed to summon the captain. He knocked at the cabin door, and politely requested the steward to inform Captain Riga that some gentlemen were on the pierhead earnestly seeking him, whereupon he joined his comrades. In a few moments the captain sallied from the cabin, and found the gentleman alluded to, strung along the top of the bulwarks, on the side next to the wharf. Upon his appearance, the row suddenly wheeled about, presenting their backs, and making a motion which was a polite salute to everything before them, but an abominable insult to all who happened to be in their rear, they gave three cheers, and at one bound cleared the ship. True to his imperturbable politeness while in port, Captain Riga only lifted his hat, smiled very blandly, and slowly returned into his cabin. Wishing to see the last movements of this remarkable crew, who were so clever ashore and so craven afloat, Harry and I followed them along the wharf till they stopped at a sailor retreat, poetically denominated the Flashes, and here they all came to anchor before the bar, and the landlord, a lantern-jawed landlord, bestirred himself behind it among his villainous old bottles and decanters. He well knew from their looks that his customers were flush, and would spend their money freely, as indeed is the case with most seamen recently paid off. It was a touching scene. "'Well, mateys,' said one of them, at last, "'I suppose we shan't see each other again. Come, let's splice the main brace all round, and drink to the last voyage.' Upon this, the landlord danced down his glasses on the bar, uncorked his decanters, and deferentially pushed them over toward the sailors, as much as to say, "'Honourable gentlemen, it is not for me to allowance your liquor. Help yourselves, your honours.' And so they did, each glass a bumper, and standing in a row tossed them all off, shook hands all round, three times three, and then disappeared in couples through the several doorways, for the flashes was on a corner. If to every one life be made up of farewells and greetings, and a good-bye, God bless you, is heard for every how-do-you-do, welcome, my boy, then, of all men, sailors shake the most hands and wave the most hats. They are here, and then they are there. Ever shifting themselves, they shift among the shifting, and like rootless seaweed are tossed to and fro. As, after shaking our hands, our shipmates departed, Harry and I stood on the corner a while till we saw the last man disappear. They are gone, said I. Thank heaven, said Harry. Chapter 62 The Last That Was Ever Heard of Harry Bolton That same afternoon I took my comrade down to the battery, and we sat on one of the benches under the summer shade of the trees. It was a quiet, beautiful scene, full of promenading ladies and gentlemen, and through the foliage, so fresh and bright, we looked out over the bay, varied with glancing ships, and then we looked down to our boots, and thought what a fine world it would be if we only had a little money to enjoy it. But that's the everlasting rub. Oh, who can cure an empty pocket? 
"'I have no doubt Goodwill will take care of you, Harry,' said I. "'He's a fine, good-hearted fellow, and will do his best for you, I know.' "'No doubt of it,' said Harry, looking hopeless. "'And I need not tell you, Harry, how sorry I am to leave you so soon.' "'And I am sorry enough myself,' said Harry, looking very sincere. "'But I will be soon back again, I doubt not,' said I. "'Perhaps so,' said Harry, shaking his head. "'How far is it off?' "'Only a hundred and eighty miles,' said I. "'A hundred and eighty miles?' said Harry, drawing the words out like an endless ribbon. "'Why, I couldn't walk that in a month.' "'Now, my dear friend,' said I, "'take my advice, and while I am gone, keep up a stout heart. Never despair, and all will be well.' but notwithstanding all I could say to encourage him, Harry felt so bad that nothing would do but a rush to a neighboring bar, where we both gulped down a glass of ginger-pop, after which we felt better. He accompanied me to the steamboat that was to carry me homeward. He stuck close to my side till she was about to put off. Then, standing on the wharf, he shook me by the hand till we almost counteracted the play of the paddles and at last, with a mutual jerk at the armpits, we parted. I never saw Harry again. I pass over the reception I met with at home, how I plunged into embraces long and loving. I pass over this, and will conclude my first voyage by relating all I know of what overtook Harry Bolton. Circumstances beyond my control detained me at home for several weeks, during which I wrote to my friend without receiving an answer. I then wrote to young Goodwell, who returned me the following letter, now spread before me. Dear Redburn, Your poor friend Harry I cannot find anywhere. After you left, he called upon me several times, and we walked out together, and my interest in him increased every day. But you don't know how dull are the times here, and what multitudes of young men, well qualified, are seeking employment in counting-houses. I did my best, but could not get Harry a place. However, I cheered him. But he grew more and more melancholy, and at last told me that he had sold all his clothes but those on his back to pay his board. I offered to loan him a few dollars, but he would not receive them. I called upon him two or three times after this, but he was not in. At last, his landlady told me that he had permanently left her house the very day before. Upon my questioning her closely as to where he had gone, she answered that she did not know, but from certain hints that had dropped from our poor friend, she feared he had gone on a whaling voyage. I at once went to the offices in South Street, where men are shipped for the Nantucket whalers, and made inquiries among them, but without success. And this, I am heartily grieved to say, is all I know of our friend. I cannot believe that his melancholy could bring him to the insanity of throwing himself away in a whaler. And I still think that he must be somewhere in the city. You must come down yourself and help me seek him out. This letter gave me a dreadful shock. Remembering our adventure in London and his conduct there, remembering how liable he was to yield to the most sudden, crazy, and contrary impulses, and that as a friendless, penniless foreigner in New York he must have had the most terrible incitements to committing violence upon himself. 
I shuddered to think that even now, while I thought of him, he might no more be living. So strong was this impression at the time, that I quickly glanced over the papers to see if there were any accounts of suicides, or drowned persons floating in the harbor of New York. I now made all the haste I could to the seaport, but though I sought him all over, no tidings whatever could be heard. To relieve my anxiety, Goodwill endeavored to assure me that Harry must indeed have departed on a whaling voyage. But, remembering his bitter experience on board the Highlander, and more than all, his nervousness about going aloft, it seemed next to impossible. At last, I was forced to give him up. Years after this, I found myself a sailor in the Pacific, on board of a whaler. One day at sea, we spoke another whaler, and the boat's crew that boarded our vessel came forward among us to have a little sea-chat, as is always customary upon such occasions. Among the strangers was an Englishman who had shipped in his vessel at Callao for the cruise. In the course of conversation he made allusion to the fact that he had now been in the Pacific several years, and that the good craft Huntress of Nantucket had had the honor of originally bringing him round upon that side of the globe. I asked him why he had abandoned her. He answered that she was the most unlucky of ships. We had hardly been out three months, said he, when, on the Brazil banks, we lost a boat's crew chasing a whale after sundown, and next day lost a poor little fellow, a countryman of mine, who had never entered the boats. He fell over the side, and was jammed between the ship and a whale, while we were cutting the fish in. Poor fellow! He had a hard time of it from the beginning. He was a gentleman's son, and when you could coax him to it, he sang like a bird. What was his name? said I, trembling with expectation. What kind of eyes did he have? What was the color of his hair? Harry Bolton was not your brother, cried the stranger, starting. Harry Bolton. It was even he. But yet I, Wellingborough Redburn, chanced to survive, after having passed through far more perilous scenes than any narrated in this my first voyage, which here I end. End of section 14. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. End of Redburn, His First Voyage, by Herman Melville.